and we went up and only half the boat cleared the rapids. We had whirlpools on one side, uh, whitewater crashing, and we were stuck there with the other half. Sort of, we were gradually edging, edging back towards this whirlpool. That was the voice of 29-year-old Suffolk-based explorer and speaker Lucy Shepherd, who's my guest on this week's episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast. My name's Dr. Will Duffin. I'm an expedition medic and WEM medical director. Lucy's just returned from a world first trek across 250 miles of virgin rainforest in Guyana's Kanaku Mountains. And in this conversation, we talk about what motivates Lucy, how to thrive in the jungle, including campcraft and navigation skills. She reflects on dramatic run-ins with savage river rapids, bushmaster snakes, packs of wild pigs, and coordinating a jungle medevac, as well as how to adjust to life back home afterwards. I really enjoyed chatting to Lucy. Believe me, she is the real deal. I hope you enjoy listening too. Hey Lucy, I'm so glad you could join us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, we're recording this in the middle of Storm Eunice, and uh, I can see roof tiles flying off uh, in front of me in, in the window. How are you surviving there in North London? Yeah, I'm looking out at Ali Pali, uh, Alexander Palace Park. It's, it's a little bit breezy. I don't think it's quite living up to uh, what I'm expecting yet, but um, I'm, I'm ready for it. I'm going to hide in my flat until, <laughs> until it gets pretty gnarly. You're, you strike me as the kind of person that's pretty much ready for anything. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, I think you have to be in order to do what, do what I do, I suppose, I suppose, or at least embrace the, the anything when it comes along. And you know, our pal Mark Beaumont, round the world cyclist, um, who's spoken at our conference a few times. How do you, uh, Mark, how are you acquainted? Yeah, so we know each other from the Scientific Exploration Society. Um, so uh, we met, we, we met a few times, but I think recently we, we, we spent, spent a good evening together and he's, uh, yeah, he's a great guy. So to this episode, we're, we're going to talk about, focus on this incredible trek you've done through Guiana's uh, Kanaku Mountains. Uh, that was a 50-day trek with, accompanied by Amerindian tribesmen who you affectionately named your forest family. Um, and Lucy's going to be speaking at our conference. So this is really a, a sneak peek of, of what you can expect. So Lucy, let, let's, let's focus. You just got back, didn't you, two and a half months ago from spending 50 days hiking across uncharted territory in the Amazon. Absolutely incredible feat. Let's start by just telling us why. What, why did you choose this particular part of the world uh, and this particular trip? So this trip actually has quite a lot of history behind it. Um, I first went to the Guyanese jungle uh, in 2014. Um, I actually had quite a quite a scary um, encounter with a with a jaguar at that point, um, so it put me off for a little little few years. But um, in 2020, I went back to Guyana to sort of face my fears of this area, and I cro I went to to the Kanuki Mountains uh, to cross it from south to north. It was a much shorter journey. It was a journey that only took a couple of weeks, um, but it was very clear that there was so much left to explore from that. And uh, I mean, the expedition that I've just come back from was it was. It was a mammoth out of this world, sort of, uh, it was bigger than anything I'd ever done. I mean, a lot of people thought we couldn't even do it. Um, it, it is an area that is not very much researched. Uh, it isn't this, the maps that we were using 50 years old. 
Um, so there really wasn't much information about it. And so that's, that kind of attracted me to it, I suppose. And what was so unique about your trip, Lucy, and this is very different to most expeditions that are organised, is rather than it being a large group of Westerners with surrounded by all this kind of Gucci Western kit, supported by kind of the, the hardy locals, you chose to go alone. You, you, you told your boyfriend, no, you're not coming with me. You didn't bring anyone with you. It was just you surrounded by the uh, Amer Amerindian tribesmen. Why was it you chose to do that? Well, um, these Amerindians, they're not like I just, they're not strangers. They're friends of mine. I've been on previous expeditions. They're a hell of a guys. They're actually absolutely the kindest people you ever meet. They're the, so good in the jungle. Um, but don't get me wrong. I mean, the area that we were going in and the expedition that we were doing, it wasn't like they just go and do that sort of thing. They hadn't been there either. It was an adventure for them too. And I think that's the, that's what I wanted to do is I wanted to go in take them on an expedition and adventure because they're all explorers in their own right as well um learn from them but also for me because they couldn't do something like this on their on their own either because of the navigation required and the sort of large-scale logistics required so i also would share my skills with them um and why did i want to do it that way i mean it's completely immersive the you get a much more raw it's not an out it's not them and me which sometimes it might be if you're with a Western group of people with Amerindian team as well, that is just natural. I mean, it's, it's human. It's something that humans do all the time without even thinking of it. But it was, yeah, we were a team. We all had our different strengths. We all had our different weaknesses and we had to come together to make it happen. And I think uh, all of us felt, every one of us felt that we were a forest family by the end of it. It doesn't, in, it, I love that when you go into these extreme environments that it doesn't matter, male, woman, uh, your race, it doesn't matter where you, where you come from. And that's also great for, for them to go back as well because uh, uh, women are seen quite differently in their cultures. So, I mean, maybe, maybe they might have a different, different look on when they return to their villages to see, to see their women. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I presume in in their culture, is it common for women to be doing that? The kind of things you were doing there to be trekking through the jungle. I mean, the women there, they are hardcore. They're strong. I think uh, uh, my my team might not give them as much credit as they deserve because they do a lot of the hard work. But no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't frequently be going off on I don't know hunting trips or going working um, doing long distance things at all. Uh, but I think that's changing. We're trying to change that uh, when we go back and trying to sort of encourage more female Amerindians to become and learn how to guide and be help out with film shoots and TV shoots in the country as well. Because I think it's needed and it, it helps with the helps with the community. I think that's a real um, beauty of being there solo is that, as you said, you're able to really get embedded within that culture, within that team. Uh, and you, it wasn't like the kind of white man came as so many of these trips where you're, it's very much like you say, them and us, um, you know, you were that forest family, you know, and that's a really um, a, amazing team dynamic to have have created. Yeah, I mean, I think I was very clear that uh, sometimes you might see pictures of me with uh, me and them and we're sort of a team and you might say, oh, you know, what's she doing? There? I look a bit, I look, I mean, I look like the outsider and I hate yeah. the word, but the colonialism that springs to mind. It's like, 
now we're trying to abominate that like it's nothing like that they don't see it like that i don't see it like that and it just wasn't you just need to look at the footage and hear how we talk about each other to to understand that and um i think what makes it special as well is because they were experiencing this for the first time it wasn't like i was going to their village and then learning how they do things and they were in their home you know they were scared they were worried they were uncertain about what was going on looking to me to make decisions looking at me where we were going to go and i think that that helps with the whole dynamic um that we were all experiencing something and being doing having this adventure together i love that it's a truly shared endeavor and that you, you learned you know, they had two-way street of learning from each other but presumably they had uh, lots of knowledge of that part of the world and what what kind of local knowledge did they bring in bring to the table that really helped you with this trip oh i could i could talk all day about what they would tell you i mean you try and <laughs> i would say like okay can we can you tell me everything you can and they'll just walk past and they'll pick something off his bark well why do you pick that and then they'll they'll tell you oh, i'll pick this because uh if you get bitten by a snake today this might buy you a few hours or um why are you taking that bit of uh, bit of um sap it's like oh well we take this because we scare off evil spirits and it takes you a long time to to get this out of them sometimes because it's so normal for them so i have to constantly be like well tell me this tell me that and it's fascinating it, it really is um and i hope that their communities are going through quite a big change at the moment a huge change actually and I hope that they're able to keep that because it's almost like some of the villages that they're in. It's uncool to learn all this stuff, the, the kids coming up, phones are starting to be introduced, even though they're living in the forest, the, <laughs> the government have provided Wi-Fi, which is fantastic. Well, so much knowledge you can get from that. But it's quite odd to look over at a village with straw huts and things in the middle of the jungle. And then there's a kid sitting in a hammock with his legs hanging out, but he's, he's on his got a phone and he's honk, honk, like hiked over with an arched back just just in focused and concentrating on his phone so much it's quite an odd uh two worlds meeting <laughs> yeah quite now your trip didn't get off to the strongest start did it tell me what happened when you um first got dropped off by boat at the very on day one of the trek yeah, so um, it took quite a few days to even get to our start point. It was it was very much, very, very remote. We were going down the Esquibo River uh, in a long aluminium boat that you know, lots of dents all over it. It's definitely had some wear and tear, but these things are not meant to capsize. They just they just don't capsize normally. And um, we, we approached some rapids. The Esquibo is notorious. It's the mighty Esquibo. It's got a lot of rapids. We approached them. Uh, the boat went up. And we had a ridiculously small engine. I think it was 15 horsepower, which is just not big enough for, for what we were doing. And we went up and only half the boat cleared the rapids. We had whirlpools on one side, uh, whitewater crashing, and we were stuck there with the other half. So we were gradually edging, edging back towards this whirlpool. There was a huge rock that was taking all the suction in as well. And after a few minutes, we were trying to trying to get the engine to move and paddling and all of this. And then we just sort of got, you know, the current got us and we got flipped, we got catapulted out. Uh, we got thrown into the water, tumbling down the water, trying to cling to our bags. Thankfully, we you know, dry bag things up just at the right moment. And yeah, we, we went under 
for a couple of minutes down to the rapids and we all popped out the other side. Miracle, no one was seriously injured. Uh, it was quite a shock for some, some of the team. Um, and it was very, somehow we managed to get all of the important vital kit. Because, you know, if we'd lost any one of those bags, that would have been really a sensible decision would have been to just stop the expedition because everything has a purpose. And um, yeah, somehow we got through and it was a big reminder that we're at the mercy of this jungle. You know, we're in the world now, don't don't mess around. And I think that was that was a theme of every time you get a bit comfortable, a bit relaxed, it just, you just get reminded, no, you, you cannot relax here. It's just, you don't have that, you don't have that um, luxury. Yeah, nature can always teach you a lesson, can't she? And yeah, I, I presume after that, you you were a state of high vigilance, ready for literally anything that could happen. Did you have any other mishaps or dramas during the course of the 50 days? Oh, yeah. I mean, every single day we had surprises. We had daily challenges. It really did feel like that. It's like, OK, well, let's see what today brings. Um, and you just had to have that attitude of that optimistic sort of, well, let's just take it, take what, take what's thrown at us. And yeah, I mean, we had, I won't go into too much detail, but we had everything from quite a lot of close calls with some big venomous snakes, Bushmaster snakes, really close calls, which um, uh, Amerindians are especially, quite rightly so, I am as well, um, feared of these Bushmasters and they were there were a lot of them there, honestly. There, I'm not exaggerating. Thousands of them where we were going through, which is sort of unheard of when you talk to uh, uh, scientists and things. Um, yeah, so we had close encounters with them, uh, peccary, wild, which are wild boar. Again, it's quite rare to come across huge like packs of 500 of these pigs, um, but they're especially aggressive, and we were coming across these 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 herds. Uh, regularly and we you have to climb a tree to get away from them yeah so we had um we had a fair share of of challenges <laughs> and you had one incident where one of your one of your um uh, amerindian uh teammates was pierced with a, a bamboo shaft while making a raft tell, tell me what happened yeah, poor Vivian. Vivian had some unlucky moments. He was—he was, he had some pretty close calls with the Bushmaster snakes as well. We got to our first resupply point. So we had two resupplies in the, in the whole 50 days. It was only two places this could happen. It was at the, the major rivers, um, which were basically barrel, barrels that were dropped off the coordinates. And so we reached these and we had to cross this major river, uh, Rima River. Uh, there was a lot of caiman involved in like in that river. It was too dangerous to cross. So we decided, well, we were surrounded by bamboo. Let's build a bamboo raft um, and it will be a great fun. We can we can even go downstream a little bit and go in at a different point than we planned. So we can we can give our feet a rest for a day. And yeah, we were cutting, we were cut all the bamboo, cutting on the, the last the last one that, that we needed because we'd figure out figured out how many we need and stuff. Vivian cut it, it landed, he put his arm up, landed on his forearm, and bamboo, for those who don't know, bamboo has these awful spikes. There is really lethal stuff, um, these spikes that come out at the joints, and it just, it, it was a tiny, tiny little thing. It penetrated his arm, it looked like a splinter, it was really small. Um, and I, you know, you think, well, we can try and pick it out, we got a needle and disinfected stuff and tried to get it we just couldn't get it and he was complaining because he he couldn't move his little finger and it was starting to affect the nerves 
Um, and one, it was on his right arm. Right arm is what you need to cut through the jungle. He machete arm, so he couldn't hold a machete. And also, after I was able to get on the sat phone then, uh, because we were out of the canopy, um, so we were actually by the river. Thankful because of we were able to get the signal, and I talked to uh, some doctors, and they they sort of advised you need to get him out there because it's infection and nerve damage, and I mean this is his livelihood in order to use his arms. So we, we couldn't risk anything. So yeah, we medevaced him. It, again, happened at the best place, happened at a river. We'd only recently had these barrels dropped off. Um, so the boat I knew could come quicker than it would have you know, in any other place. So uh, yeah, we, we got him out, got him out pronto. Yes, it sounds like he had a nasty, nasty ulnar nerve injury. Yeah, and, and, and how did you actually action that medevac presumably you couldn't use a, a sat phone with a dense canopy uh, how, how did you how were you able to call help call for help well again luckily because it was at the river um the yeah the sat phone under the canopy just as much as i tried it just doesn't work uh you can try and cut, cut, cut trees down but it's really really unfortunately unreliable and i think you would have to put it on a fishing wire and bow and arrow it up a tree and then pull it up. <laughs> that was our, that was our game plan. I'd like to see really... that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, you need to see these guys with the bows and arrows. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, so I was actually able to get signal to Anders, who was operation manager and Zanson. Um, and his, he would ha- was in the boat with the, having just dropped off the, the barrels so he was only a few hours away um so we got him vivian went with him in the boat it took him a couple days to actually get to civilization and meanwhile we also needed another team member because of all our kit so anders had to go around the villages while we waited with our raft he went around the villages quite miles and miles away saying do you want to come on this expedition do you want to do this and uh thankfully he found carlos carlos just um, asked his wife if he could go, and off he came. And then we had a had a had yeah. a another fourth, fifth, fifth team member. So. I, I, I imagine you had a lot of kit. So you only, you had two resupplies during the fifty days. Is is that right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and you were carrying loads of around thirty five kilograms on your back through really technical terrain with kind of gnarled and twisted tree roots and slippery forest floors mm-hmm. and you know, all that deadly snakes and wild boars and pumas and things around what, what toll did that take on your body over that 50 days yeah it was a huge uh, huge strain and something you have to get used to very quickly i mean people describe the, the expedition as a trek and i say well actually it was anything but trekking um if we'd trekked that would that would have been a lo- lovely lovely experience but this was crawling this was climbing this was hopping on one leg it was uh, wading through a lot of water as you can imagine um and yeah it, your first few weeks everyone has to get used to it it's a lot of weight on your back to carry it's a lot of twisting and i think one of the biggest uh, things i would always worry about daily is because you're dealing with that weight and you're dealing with the un the un, um uh, uneven ground but also you're you're constantly putting your your feet on dead branches or dead leaves and you don't know where the holes are you don't know if your foot's going to just fall through. So I was always worried about people um, can twist their leg or break their leg yeah. or ankles. Such a common, that, I mean, that could end, that could end the expedition, just little things like that. Yeah. But yeah, the body, it got used to it by the end, but it's, I think we're going to talk about it later, but the wetness, you never, 
you never yeah. used to being wet all the time. That's definitely something we should touch on is is the art of self-care in the jungle. I'd be really interested to know how you managed your wet and dry kit, how you looked after your feet. Uh, yeah, just the general wetness of everything. Things just rotting. And uh, what, what are your top tips for other other people listening that, that spend time in the jungle on how you stayed healthy in that environment very very hostile environment over such a long period of time yeah and it's especially hostile and hard when you're doing what we were doing where you want you're not by the rivers you so you don't have any sunlight and also moving every single day where you don't have time to even even try and wring out your clothes it, it does make it hard so the, the routine is is absolute paramount and what would we do well we also of course we always have a wet and dry routine so you take two pairs of clothes and you have your wet clothes that is wet from either rain river sweat all, all of the above um when you get to camp and that can be anywhere you, you always try and choose somewhere with a water source where we were there's not always a creek it's not always beautiful idyllic water it might just be stagnant water at times but ha- you have to try and you can't go one or two nights without without fresh water because every night you wash wash your clothes that you've been wearing all day use special soap wring it out it's never going to dry overnight but you try and get the bacteria out you really scrub scrub your skin uh, i use a bit of soap with um, a net, net bag uh, and if you have a net bag like something sunglasses come in or or something like that and you really you, you um scrub as hard as you can your back your back gets a lot of ticks tiny tiny ones that are hard to get off unless you really really scrub and they can obviously get infected so you spend a lot of time washing um, and then you get into your dry clothes also top tip never ever if you're going into the deep jungle and moving through it and not by rivers never take a towel it's so pointless because it'll never dry and it's just a sock soaking heavy thing in your bag so yeah you you get into your dry clothes and you sort of try and wait by the fire to see if your skin dries out but it's it's a humid place that you're rarely super dry um with the feet i mean the feet are the most important things so powder powder every night powder every morning sometimes it feels like you're onto a losing battle because you're, you're in the morning you'll pay such great attention to powdering your feet putting it and putting this powder in your nice you know, in your, your wet soggy socks and you think okay it's going to be okay today and then as soon as you start you into into the water into the creek <laughs> but you have to just you can't you can't not every every little thing you've got to be so disciplined with doing uh, it all makes such a difference and checking your skin i think top tip in when you you always have to get in your hammock quite early uh, it gets dark very early you need to be off the ground away from the the creatures because you can't see and just using a head torch to just study your skin uh, it's really really important you're looking for leeches you're looking for ticks you're looking for any infections that you need to keep an eye on uh, use your teammates i would use use my teammates to look at my back and i'd look at their back and then start pulling off pulling off ticks here there and everywhere uh, so it's really just keeping that routine and having a routine and never, even if you think it's it's pointless sometimes, just just stick with it. So it takes a lot of self-discipline to to look after yourself. Did did your what were your feet like at, at the end of all of this? Be just being wet and dry all the time, or, or maybe mostly wet? Were they in reasonable mm. condition? The body is amazing at adapting. That's one thing I have learned from expeditions. Mm. Uh, the first three weeks we were all suffering. Um, I think. I think I have some nerve damage from my feet. We all do uh, from just being wet all the time. 
just a bit numb. It's starting to gradually come back. But for me, that's also years of being very cold in, in Arctic and mountain environments as well. Um, but yeah, I do honestly think that the body after a certain time can, as long as you haven't got infections, because um, nothing will heal there, that your body can get tougher. Let's talk a little about jungle campcraft. Now, you're a big fan of the Hennessy hammock, as, as am I. They're amazing bits of kit. How, how did you set up your camp? What were the kind of key things that made your camp successful each night? Yeah, so once we found a water source, we, well, we know it's a routine of five. We look at the trees, figure out camp. The, the most important thing for us was to make sure we could all be close together because if you, you do become, in these really, really remote jungle environments, you do become vulnerable if you're out on a limb for your team. So privacy isn't a thing. We, I made it very clear that we were all going to be very close together. Um, so we all find, make sure that we can be close or share trees a lot of the time. Then we, we start sweeping, we start sweeping the ground with our machetes, um, clearing debris, clearing as many dead leaves as we can. Uh, that's, of course, so that you can see what's on the ground, scorpions, bullet ants, making sure there's no ant nests or termites or things like that that might come and, come and give you a nasty sting or, or ruin, your, ruin your camp. And once you've done that, you, yeah, you set up your hammock, put up your tarps. We have some, some big, big tarps, which is really handy when because of the torrential rain. You need, you need some good shelter. Um, and what, what is important, I mean, drying or hanging things, not, again, nothing dries, but there's, you get this sense of homeliness, don't you? When you've got all your tarps up and you've got washing lines out, you've got your pots and pans, and it does... Yeah. It does create this, oh, okay, we're here. We can settle for a few hours tonight. It's, it's a nice It's a feeling. great feeling. It's a great feeling. One of the things I've always struggled with is lighting fires in the jungle because everything's so wet. Did, how, how did you manage that? Did you bring your own fire lighting equipment? Yeah, actually, it's not too bad in the, in the jungle um, because uh, everything is wet, yes, but you look for standing dry wood or dead wood. So you you see you spot trees, and I mean there's enough trees in the jungle that every there's some somewhere there's a dead tree, and then you look at the dead tree, you take off the the bark on the outside, inside it's so dry, um, and so you never the, the key with lighting a fire in the jungle is you never take anything from the ground because then the ground is just saturated with water. Um, you always take it from things that are right, still standing. Once you've done that, I mean we the ground was wet enough that we could light a fire straight onto the the wet leaves obviously if you're if it's been dry and dry and dry for for weeks you'll you'll be able to tell is you have to raise it otherwise you risk burning the forest down but you make you make a call and um yeah the fires we took we well we we did a mixture of matches which most of the time um some of the guys occasionally used a tiny bit of petrol that we had just because <laughs> why not um but we ran out of that yeah it was just matches and then a, a fire lighter as well occasionally a sort of um, sparker i'm a big fan of the sparker because they work anywhere yeah brilliant so you didn't have to resort to any kind of uh bow type uh bushcraft skills <laughs> we did it for just just to do it twice just um, for fun for yeah 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 just, yeah, cool. it, just to do it. but it's, when you're so, when you're there there's enough things to worry about when you've got oh, you know you can do it i mean it looks cool to. doesn't it 
but I mean, I've tried it a few times. It's so time consuming and difficult yeah. and it requires like Herculean levels of patience, especially after you've been trekking all day. And you're exactly. And all you want to do is go and, <laughs> yeah, all you want to do when you get to camp is have your food, then go and dry your skin out in your hammock. And there's this yeah. urgency to just sort of sit there with your, <laughs> your body just open in your hammock. Just please dry. <laughs> so yeah, the, yeah. The, the less time you can do uh, like, it takes to light a fire there um so considering you're lighting them twice a day is uh, is a good yeah, thing yeah. last time i was in my hennessy hammock in jungle in costa rica i hadn't used it for a few years and i'd done all that stuff we'd lit a fire had some nice dinner and stuff and it was like oh let's go into bed we all lovely and dry get my dry kit and you know get all cozy and i went in there and i'd forgotten that uh, the the tarp was so old and knackered i hadn't replenished the dwr coating so oh. I looked inside my hammock and it was it was torrential rain and it was raining oh. inside the hammock and everything was it was just one of the just the bleakest moments. That was a real learning point for me. You've got to look up and check your kit and not just assume, even though you've been using it for years, that it's still uh, fit for purpose and that all this stuff needs maintenance and repair. And I, yeah, I was just very, very casual and I paid the price. <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely i mean it's all things like that isn't it we were talking about top tips when you arrived to camp one of my team mikey he um he really for some reason really wanted to wash later in the evening all the time we everyone else we would just we'd get to camp set up a hammock and then go and have a wash get out of those clothes and the bacterial clothes as quickly as possible but for some reason he used to like going later and he was the only person that got mosquito worm uh, so the Ooh. larvae in your skin that grow and got five of them. None of us got any oh. of them, and I think that was, you know, that was because he wasn't. He was staying in his manky clothes for longer, yeah, and yeah. it had time to go in. So, um, yeah, cleaning such a big yes big yes it, just like your mother told you wash behind your ears but it, it, it's beyond that in the jungle isn't it it's, it's it's not just a matter of hygiene it's a matter of survival isn't it uh, yeah and self-care and, uh, is so important yeah looking in between your fingertips uh, fingertips in, yeah. in between your fingers uh for ticks uh, they like that they really like those little places so um tell me about jungle navigation lucy this is a particular unique challenge of being in underneath the canopy you've got dense canopy it's really hard to get your bearings there's very few uh landmarks or viewpoints the the very limited maps of of where you are how did you manage to work out where your your position and your bearing when you were doing this trip yeah, it was always, always going to be a challenge. Um, even when I was looking at the maps before leaving, I couldn't plan a route. I knew where I was starting. I knew where we were going to have resupply points. But I couldn't say this is the best route to go to until we actually got there because you also don't know how long it's going to take you each day. So what I'd do every night, um, every night before the next day, as I'd look at the maps, uh, I would try and think, try and guess where a water source might be um maps didn't always have them on there but from experience you you think well i think there might be water here and then you put a few different options because then you don't know how thick the vegetation is going to be uh, so you've got to have escape points right we might be here but okay if, if it's this point at 12 noon then we're going to have to go this option and so you, you plan that out in your head um but then in the day i just work off a compass and bearing um so I have a GPS, I have an inReach, 
But in terms of giving you the map, it doesn't have a map on there. Um, it just can give you the coordinates, which is great in the evening and the more, and just before you're about to start and knowing, making sure you kind of have an idea of where you are. But again, sometimes didn't correlate to the maps because they were unreliable. So that was, you had to make sure you weren't just thinking that was uh, uh, correct every time. And oh, navigation in the jungle. It's so hard. I spent all my time just staring at my compass. So I would go third all the time. I'm head of head of nav. You have two lead cutters, two of the team that we we rotate, and I say, okay, the bearing is this. We're going to go in that direction, and they'll start cutting. But we, humans cannot walk in a straight line as hard as we try. Um, we all, we seem to always go left because of our right leg is always dominant. And you look on the map and you just gradually go left, just tiny, tiny, tiny points, and this. You know, the guys will think they're going straight. But I have to stare at that bearing and say, no, go right a bit more, right a bit more. And you try and correct it as well because you have obstacles that you can't go through, whether it's a denser part of forest or a falling down tree. And you'll go, okay, well, I'm going to go left and I'm going to straighten up. But again, you might, I might have to change the bearing again, um, depending on, on that. And there are, there are no points, there are no viewpoints. And you just have to have to hope that you just stare at that little arrow and adjust it when you need to. Uh, it's did, did you get lost? Out. Often, get lost, but we we would go off track if you're not not paying attention. I, it's every minute or so I have to have to give a direction, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. That is a well-described thing, actually, how people, when they're walking, do naturally deviate to one side. If I'm walking with someone on my right, I'm always <laughs> walking into them. I'm not really concentrating on talking. I can only really do one thing at a time. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm talking, but not concentrating on walking. So I'll walk into them constantly and they're just, come on, man, what are you doing? Uh, apparently, what you can do is you can go into a field, like, like a sports track or something, and you can just blindfold yourself and walk just in a, what you think is a straight line. And then you can measure the degrees of natural deviation that you, and, and that is apparently it's quite a consistent thing. Just so you, you know great. the future. Um, that's you can factor yeah. that into your compass bearing. <laughs> so. That is really interesting. Yeah, because as soon as you add in trees and climbing over um, branches oh, yeah. and vines and crawling and things, then it, it it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a whole different level. So, so that's so we've talked about uh, self care. We've talked about jungle camp. We've talked about um, uh, navigation, about uh, medivac, all these challenges of uh, of being in the jungle. Uh, one thing I'd like I'm interested in is when this was all over and you'd achieved it. There must have been an incredible feeling to have to this is you know it's a world first essentially what what you've achieved there is how you transition from living in that environment and in with it with your forest family back to regular life in north london this is a lot of expeditioners struggle about this kind of reverse culture shock that that transition back to your kind of usual life what what was that like i mean it's not the first time you've done this but what what were the challenges on this occasion and and how do you what techniques could you share with our audience that might help them make that transition yeah i mean um when the first time this happened uh, over 10 years ago it was a huge shock to the system um, no one warned me about it. It was, it hit me hard. And since then, you know, yeah, like you said, I've done it a lot of times. I kind of know what to expect. I know that I'm never going to have that same experience again. I can definitely have other just as good experiences, but what I've just been through is done. It's the end, end of an era. 
And for me, coming back on this one is actually a bit of a whirlwind because of the, the media reception and the interviews. I was suddenly have to ref- having to talk about this expedition that I hadn't even time had time to digest yet. Um, so I just picked a few stories that because you, you don't even you can't even remember everything when you just come back. You're, you're so involved with just finalizing it, and you know I've forgotten all the eight stories. So I picked a few stories that I could just regurgitate. Um, because I knew I was going to have to go back and write books and things and think about it deeply. And so I just found myself in just talking about it constantly. Um, but I think for my team, they, when we, the end of the expedition, we basically, the forest ran out, we reached the savannah, and that was the end of the expedition. We came out into the heat of the savannah. Suddenly this, um, my communication device had cell reception I think it was clear that my parents had been tracking my every move even though I couldn't get messages from them got out into the in the bright blue sky and uh just get a message from my parents saying what a relief and um uh it was definitely a relief but for my team they were nervous they were I think a lot of people get this feeling of nervous to go back to not mundane life, but not that same achievement every single day. And it's hard. And they were worried about leaving and people not understanding what they've been through because they've changed as people. And I think the tips that I tell people, I told them, I told people, tell people when I guide them in the Arctic is that what you've been through, you, even though it's ending, it doesn't have to, you can, you can keep on to this, this person is still that person. You can go back and think about what you've achieved and use that, use that energy to go and thrive in everyday life, but be warned that you've changed so much. Other people, other life haven't. So be expecting that um, because I think you always expect when you've changed so much and had so many experiences that everyone else will and that everyone will care. People might not care what you've done, but that does not matter. You can, you can be proud of yourself. And I think most important thing in life for me and to go and do things is to be proud of your past self I think it's very very special if you can if you're going through tough times and you can think well I've got through that in the past and go through that so just use that energy that you've learned and um on to the next thing <laughs> yeah that idea of using that energy to thrive in everyday life but not necessarily expecting everyone to really have changed in the way that you have and I, I complete these kind of experiments the, the whole raison d'etre isn't it? it's why we go into extreme environments is so that we can grow and transform as as people I think that the world is out there isn't it and um you, you can't do that from uh from your kitchen table can you absolutely um, and there's this there's this beautiful yeah. point I think it lasts about two weeks when you've just finished a big challenge big personal challenge whatever it might be and there's two weeks where you are totally in the present when you talk to people. You radiate this energy and it's um, it, other people will get it off you and they'll feel just as energized by talking to you. And it lasts about two weeks. After that, you get sucked into normal life. I mean, the phones, you start looking at your phone too much and you're distracted and you're not not so much engaged. But those those magical two weeks, I say, when you get back from doing something like this, put put all the uh everything you've ever wanted put it out in the ether have those conversations have those meetings because it's the best time to do it <laughs> so the final thing i'd just like to ask you lucy before we draw things to a close is around your role models because uh, and we spoke about this before we started recording is a real lack of female role, role models in the adventure space i mean your role models were people like ben fogel and bear grills but um you know they're really they're very few uh, 
uh, women in, in that space in, in, in a kind of a high profile um, way. So w- w- tell me about your thoughts on that. And, and do you think that might be changing? Definitely changing. Um, it's much needed for sure. Um, but yeah, we're seeing seeing more women have been getting into adventure and getting more media coverage over the last recent years. Um, I think it needs to it needs to happen because I mean, yes, I was inspired by by male male adventurers, male explorers, but I think I was really inspired by what they were doing, and I was able to look past. Uh, I, I was lucky enough in you know my best friend was a boy. I very much felt myself. As sort of this this male, male explorer or something, I look past that. But for so many people, it's uh, it doesn't even enter their mind that it might be possible. Um, if because well, you know, he's a man, he's a military man. I'm not. I don't want to join the military, and it's probably out of reach for me. But if you just present that opportunity and um, present that you know, we can redefine what it means to be an explorer, um, you don't have to look a certain way. You can. We all have our different strengths. We all have a different weaknesses, and we can all, as individuals, thrive in these environments. I think it's um, really good to show kids, especially, that 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 opportunity is out there. Well, provide some balance, I think, especially on social media to all young girls who are just presented with lots of uh, makeup tutorials and. um, Mm. uh yeah the, the their role models often kind of pop stars and 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 that kind of thing so it's nice to show them that you can be outdoorsy and and strong and adventurous um so well done uh, that's um, and and that you can have both it doesn't yeah. have to be either or nothing needs mm, to be one yeah. or the other you can do you can do everything yeah you know? I, I i love to go to do school talks and turn up quite I don't know, glammed up because I'll often have yeah. little boys say, you don't look like an explorer. And it's like, that's the point. Because <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, the, the little girl, <laughs> little girl there might think, yes. oh, well, maybe I don't have to choose because mm. I, I enjoy both. So, yeah, it's, um, you never, never have to, it's never black and white. Yeah, quite, quite. Now, uh, Lucy, we've got the pleasure of uh, meeting you face to face at this year's World Extreme Medicine Conference in November. Can you give us a, a little sneak preview of what you'll be talking about? Yeah, I'm going to be going into quite some in-depth of the different sort of milestones of my getting to where I am now, the different expeditions and different moments that really were poignant to me. Um, also, the things that I think most important qualities to have in order to achieve big goals, whatever they might be, um, that I've learned that I, I always go back to and I've decided they are the the, the the most valuable things that as people we can do um, in order to take on our, our ambitions head on. Well, looking forward to to um, seeing you in November at, at the conference in Edinburgh, Lucy. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. And if you're listening, I hope you can join us there as well. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you.